world, and welcome back to the Shape of a Star podcast, where everyone has a story. We just need to shape it so that, like, we're the star or something along those lines, like that. Everyone's special in their own way. We just like to talk about it here. So today we have on, or tonight, or whenever you're listening to this, honestly, today is September 20th, 2023. Do not cancel us if something we says does not age as appropriate. Uh, we do not know the future. And for those who know why I say this, I started this in the middle of 2020 when we didn't know when things were opening up. So that's the disclaimer. That's the time of reference. But today we have on someone super, super cool uh, that has touched many aspects of things that I talk about frequently here. So I'm just going to bring them on. Everyone, please welcome Matt Otto. Hello, friends. Thanks for having me. No problem. Thank you for coming. Um, I said your name correctly, right? Oh, yeah, definitely. Nailed it. Okay. So question number one for you. <laughs> what did you think of the jingle? Because I totally didn't think to ask you your opinion. Oh, I loved it. Did you <laughs> did you write that yourself? I did not. So I work with a lot of marching bands. So I know oh, a lot dope. of like, compose. So I made my friend do it for me. I love um, it. You'll hear the full version at the end. But basically, oh, wait, you know music. I can actually talk about this with you. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So I gave him four songs. I gave him two of the Winx Transformation Fairy songs. Oh, that's Um, cool. Nobody's Perfect by Hannah Montana and a song from Little Mix. Oh, nice. They're all in the key of A major. Go. (laughs) And he was like, okay, busted this back to me. I got a DM from his wife like later that week and she was like, your stupid jingle stuck in my head because I knew her <laughs> before him. And I was like, oh my God, is it really that catchy? <laughs> yeah, it's very catchy. It got me hyped. Yeah. And that's only like a fifth of it. So get uh, nice. I was ambitious people, but then I realized fast. I'm like, I can't listen to the whole 60 seconds at the beginning. <laughs> <laughs> Who do I think I am? Like a full theme song? Well, in the end, kind of is. But we're not here about the music. We're here about you, Matt. So you're one of the first, you're one of the few guests who actually discovered me and I didn't go out and seek or find in the world and dragged you on. Well, I mean, I kind of dragged you on, but (laughs) you discovered who I was first. So can you tell the tale on how you discovered me? I saw you on Instagram. You were talking to another adoptee. Uh, and I said, I'm an adoptee. And then you said, I have a podcast about adoption and people and stuff. And you should come on and talk about it. And I was like, that sounds amazing. Please let me do that. And so <laughs> and here I am. Boom. Yeah. Um, I think it was Tara, right? I think so. I don't yeah, remember off the top of my head. Tara's episode 20 something, 22, 23, 24, somewhere in the low twenties, everyone. Uh, go listen to Tara's story. Tara is a fellow adoptee that I guess we both know. And yeah, you can hear all about um, Adopted Babies from China podcast. I hope it's still called that. It just had like a slight name change. Um, Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, well, everyone. So go listen. Sorry if you hear the truck outside. But back to Matt. So speaking of tales, how... Would you describe yourself as a story? Oh, no, you do describe yourself as a storyteller. So I want to know, how did you become cognizant of stories? This was one of my favorite questions that you asked in your questionnaire, uh, because it really threw me for a loop at first. I thought, like, uh, what? how did I become that? I couldn't remember. And then I thought about it. And um, growing up, 
like when I was really little before like Cub Scouts were a thing or Boy Scouts, um, we went camping with like a group of dads that my dad knew and some of their kids. And at the campfire at night, one of the dads would tell the story of, from the Odyssey, would tell various stories from the Odyssey. So he told the story of the Cyclops and he told it in such a great way that was like really had the beats and like knew when to pause and knew when to build anticipation and uh, build up the action and like make the action go fast and build up to it. And like, I just remember that moment of him telling that story, like really clued me into like the power of like, not only telling a story, but performing it and not like giving voices or anything, but just like being able to share this cool thing in a cool way. Boom. And that story isn't for you, everyone. So that's how you became cognizant of stories. When did you start to become a storyteller? Um, I think it was it was in undergrad. Um, where like in high school I did sound design and I worked at, at the drama club and I did theater and I thought that was very cool. I joined that because I wanted to see how the stories ended. And then like, you know, I did the sound. It was like a large like director being like play this at this time and doing this thing and so i was like okay that's cool i didn't really like i was just like more into the technology of it but then when in undergrad like i had a lot of classes about dramaturgy about like uh like what it mean what this play means and why we do this play and what like what is impactful about this play and why is this play important to people who come and hear it and from there i was like starting to figure out oh i can I can tell stories with my art, which is music and sound. And so like I started developing my vocabulary for that from there. And that's how I tell stories. I call myself a storyteller because it's like, as a sound designer, um, people don't know what that means when you tell them I'm a sound designer. And they're like, what does that mean? You're like, I write music and sound effects for plays. But like, and like, there's a whole thing with sound design in the theater industry where a lot, it's like very technical and not very artistic people don't see it that way. So I try to classify myself as a storyteller through that medium. And I think it adds a sense of artfulness to it. Maybe I, maybe it's just me being pretentious though. No, it's not you being pretentious at all. Um, I have watched behind the scene things before from various, various mediums. And no, sound design's hard people. Um, <laughs> it is very technical. And it's not as musical as I expected. Like, you know, everything does have a rhythm in life, but sound design, no, you have to go offbeat so often to match whatever's happening that I'm like, ooh, hard for me to follow. So big shout outs. No, thanks. Hard. Give it respect. <laughs> um, <laughs> so yeah, that's also interesting that you did not become a storyteller really till undergrad. Um, a lot of the time when I ask similar veins of this question, people are like, oh, in elementary school, when I was bored by my teacher, you know, and they just go on some like long stories. So oh, sure. Interesting for you that didn't happen till later in life after you began to hone your craft, as they say. Yeah, it really did take like going to art school to figure that out because I didn't I didn't really know that you could do that. Growing up in my in my school, we we're a well off uh, school district, but like that kind of like thought process or. uh Curation wasn't a thing at all. What area of the world was the school? South Jersey, uh, oh, okay. outside of Philadelphia. 
Okay, see, that's what always throws me off. I always For think sure. South Jersey is actually by Philly because I always think Philly's up by North Jersey by the city. No, no, Philadelphia is like 30 minutes from Delaware. Yep, which I should know because I actually went and visited Philly like about a year ago. Oh, that's cool. And I, I like actually Philly. went and I saw a bunch of theater there. So shout out to all the theater out there. The Arden Theater. Is it Arden? Oh, crap. Arden, yeah. Arden's yeah. one of them. The Walnut yeah. Street Theater. Um, is that the then, one that's like the first in America? Yeah, it's one of the oldest theaters in America for sure. I was at those too. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. Um, oh, yeah. It was the first time I ever saw like a play play, not a musical though, too. Oh, really? What did I see? God. It's that thing about ghosts. Um, and it was a movie. Oh. And it was like a long, it was an old movie. It was like in the 50s. It was in black and white. But it was actually just really funny. It was a comedy. Okay. Um, yeah. Elvira. El, but they were like, Elvira's back. And she was, it was his first wife haunting. <laughs> oh, that's cool. Yeah. I don't um, know. I don't think I know what play it is. I was going to say the piano lesson. That's the one I immediately jumped to about ghosts. Yeah. No. Wow. I'm horrible at promoting. Anyway, the theater was wonderful, everyone. And That's because great. I was there during the week, I was there during like a Wednesday afternoon showing. So I was there with a bunch of senior citizens and I was like, oh, look at this. This is interesting. Oh, were the performances good? I always wonder like going to matinees, see, Wednesday matinees, see if, if people go, it, like what the performance are like. Oh, I thought it was fine. Um, oh, great. Yeah. Uh, I actually like to see matinees because I am such a morning person that like by 10 a.m. guys, my productivity is done. Work if you're listening don't uh <laughs> and like you yeah, know i do my heavy stuff like first thing when i get to work in the morning or even on the weekends i'm like i need to be done with the world by 10 a.m oh wow all downhill from there that's interesting and, yeah it's fun and but it's also like uh this is not conducive to store hours <laughs> if i have to go places but yeah so i do a lot of matinee showings actually i just saw moulin rouge at the kennedy center like at the saturday matinee and I was even thinking, I was like, hmm, are they going to like fully belt and everything? Because they have to do another one like an hour. And they did. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I get undersized and stuff, but um, that's awesome. I love the Kennedy Center. What, was it in the what, it was in the Eisenhower? It's whatever the theater that's made for opera is. <laughs> yeah. Right on. Right on. I don't remember what that one is. It's the it's red gorgeous. one that they show the Kennedy Center awards on. Yeah, it's gorgeous in there. And it sounds amazing in that space. Okay, see, that's actually a thing I just had a whole conversation about today with someone else. So you could probably, like, appreciate and explain it better than me. But I have this whole thing where I feel that, like, in that red room, which is, like, I think the worst way to describe it. But it is a red room, people. But It's true. Um, I feel like it is one of, like, the weirdest places for musicals, sound-wise, because, like, all, like, the velvet, like, absorbs sound. But like opera sounds amazing in there. It's uh, musicals are largely amplified, and like opera houses are designed to not be amplified, to not have amplified sound in them. So what you're probably seeing is like it's over. There's too much energy in the room, is what I'd imagine it is. I haven't seen a, a musical in that space, but that's largely what the kind of stuff happens, where like the space is too reverberant, is too active that it starts to get a little muddy, muddy and mushy for intelligibility. Yes. And it's only like the higher end of sound, not like high notes, but like right. higher frequencies. It's like just vibrates in the air. Yeah. It's um, 
the intelligibility where like the S's, like our semblances, like a S or a t sound, that's where we get the intelligibility of the words we're saying. So if that's, if that's becomes too much and too active, then you're going to lose exactly what they're saying and, and, and like understand worse. Wow, people. See, I'm sitting here learning with you. Um, this is why <laughs> I love having so many people from like random world backgrounds on here because I just sit here and learn and talk about things that, fast, that confuse me in life and then I just get a lesson. Um, <laughs> but... Yeah, no, I've been to a lot of different theaters, but we're going to get into that in a different section. Back to you in storytelling. Um, <laughs> okay, great. What kind of stories did you first tell? Um, it was mostly like... Describe it. Uh, like, like politically interesting stories of the 20th century. So like, uh, like stories like... Uh, um, like The Crucible or Marat Saad, or stuff that's, like, coded yet political, you know, that kind of, like, that kind of stuff that really interests me. Um, uh, there's also a play that stuck out. Like, I took this one particular class that was, like, the stories of the 21st century, and uh, it was taught by this uh, actor named Jim Spruill. If, look, Google him. He's, he uh, did a lot of wonderful work all around and he brought his experience and lived experience and knowledge to this class where he taught about like important plays of the 21st century he read all these really cool plays um i think another one was called something in franny that was about abortion that really like changed my view of this play of the topic and like it was not it was just like kind of coded it wasn't like explicit about a lot of stuff but it, it, it just was very interesting to like find like uh, subtextual ways to tell important stories. So that's where I started with that, largely because of this class that Jim Spool taught. Shout out to teachers. <laughs> Truly. Um, and how have you changed as a storyteller as the years have gone by? I got a lot more training. And so I um, got a lot better at using other tools, not just sound and... Um, uh, excuse me. Hold on, I'm gonna cough, so I don't want to do that. We can take that out. I appreciate it. Um, <clears throat> can you ask me the question again? Oh yeah, totally. Uh, here, let me give the five seconds of silence. Okay, so over time, how have you changed as a storyteller? I got a lot more training and I, it gave me a lot more tools on how to tell stories. So before I was using like soundscapes and I was trying like this kind of thing where it's like, maybe it's a little too on the nose or maybe it's a little too ham fisted. Like I did a, uh, I did Arcadia by Tom Stoppard. Um, and that was like, they have this steam machine that's supposed to like redefine the garden. And that's like this metaphor that, that Tom Stoppard uses throughout the play about like how change comes and it's inevitable. And um, I made this thing like clanky and, and weird and it sounded almost like Hal's moving castle. It was like a little too cartoony. And then like over time, I found ways to make that more nuanced, more subtle and more like, I found ways to make 
my sound designs, not just use pulled music, but make my own music and apply like musical ideas on to my sound design. So it wasn't just like, here's a cue. It's like this cue leads into this other cue that tells this part of the story. And I added like a, what I, what I now teach my classes is attack, sustain, decay, and release, which is like how we describe a note that's being a, a hit. If you've, if you studied synthesis or if you study MIDI, it's the same kind of idea. So like when you hit, if you hit it hard, that's a very fast attack. If you hit it soft, it's a slow attack. And then you have the uh, sustain where it's like what happens after you hit it. And then the decay is what happens when you, uh, when it's slowing down, like the string on a piano is slowing its vibrations down. And then the release is when you take your finger off the key. And so I apply like that kind of thought. You could also describe it as a beginning, middle and end. I, I, I prefer a more musical term, but you know, that's like to all my sound design and to all my cues. So it's not just like, here's a cue and then I'm going to fade it out. It's like, this is the rising action. This is what happens in the middle and this is how it ends. And that's really improved my storytelling and improved like the ability to transfer the subtext of the play that I'm working on to my design. Boom. See people. I'm glad that you also translated it back to not as super musical terms. Cause I know I could follow it because you know, but just, general audience i feel like anyone and everyone listens to this show so perfect yes. perfect uh i'd so shout out to you for being able to general pop your technicalities <laughs> and technique talk because not everyone can and to be fair there's literally just like no other way to describe it sometimes yeah um, that's true but you did it and that's a big thing to shout out thanks okay so something you haven't mentioned um to me yet but like your instagram mentions you're also a photographer that's true so what kind of photos do you like to take uh landscape mostly and travel kind of photography um i like to go to some place and try to find like the it sounds cliche but it's kind of like the essence but it's not really the essence it's more like what are the cool things about this like you know the difference between going to a place on a cruise and going to a place and staying at an Airbnb. You know what I mean? Like trying to find the way where it's like the off the beaten path or the like thing that the locals find authentic about this place. And that's, I guess that's the better way to put it, but it still sounds cheesy is the authenticity of a place. Okay. Um, this brings me to a very funny story um, <laughs> that I want to hear your take on because it was funny to me, but maybe it actually was something more artistic and just was above my head which oh. would surprise me as well because um, I've been in the arts for a lot, very, very long time as well. But so I was at a, when I was at college, I was walking through and someone had like an art studio open and I was like, oh, cool. So apparently this person like lived abroad in China, was studying for a year and they were taking photos of just, you know, life in China, kind of like what you were saying, but it was the description of what this one photo was that mm. threw me off. Okay. So it was like super dirty, dusty, worn down like street, right? In like rural China. And the quote under it was, okay, I just have to make sure I say it right. It was, I chose this photo because it displays the flavor of the village. Oof. <laughs> okay. That's a lot. And I literally just looked at it. And I just like busted out laughing. <laughs> yeah. I was like, this is the greatness of the village. Like in the next photo, it's like the same street with like kids playing. Like, 
with a dog and stuff. I was like, that's super cute. Why is the barren, dusty street your flavor of this village when you have like life? And I'm yeah, it. yeah. It's, it seems like it's almost like a colonist, colonist, colonizer's kind of view of the place, right? Like, or an outsider's view of the place. Like, this is what they, ex this is what my audience expects it to be, as opposed to what it actually is. Okay, see, so <laughs> I wasn't insensitive, people. I was just um, laughing, I guess. I don't know. I kind of get what you meant, though, by like the colonizers of you. It's like how Mexico's always tan filtered. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It has a sepia tone to it. And Poland is gray. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, exactly. That kind of stuff is like so uh dated at the very least, if not like offensive. Yep. And I think that was half of it too. I was just so taken aback. I was like, that's the whole flavor of this village. Damn. Um <laughs> Yeah. But yeah. So back to you. How did you get into photography? Um it, so the, one of the reasons I did sound design is because it's like, what am I going to go to college for? I have no idea. And I did, I went to college for, for sound design because it was like a thing I did in high school and I was good at it. And then in, in college, there was a lot of visual arts classes because I went to a conservatory. I went to, um, uh, and there was like a conservatory and, and like the way you teach theater is all through visuals. Like sound designers are pretty rare and they're still kind of rare to this day. And that was like 20 years ago. Um, and so there was all these visual classes. I took watercolor, I took drafting. And then there was another one that like, I had to take a whole year of art history. And I really fell in love with the aspects in art history. And then there was one of the teachers at the conservatory, theater conservatory taught a photography class. And so I just decided to take it. I happened to buy a, like a cheap point and shoot digital camera. Cause this was, before the uh, smartphone days where you had a great camera in your pocket all the time. And uh, it really helped me hone my eye. And so I just kind of like really all this training from my conservatory of the visual stuff, I was, I was able to like apply to photography. And I love what I loved about photography was that digital photography, this is right around when that was really coming into its own. Uh, I could undo it, right? Like if I didn't like the picture, I could just delete it. I didn't have to buy a roll of film and then spend more money to develop it. I could just point my camera at something, look at that, and then iterate on that idea very quickly. And that's where I started to fall in love with it and like really be able to like explore and experiment with like that kind of stuff. When I first started, I was working a lot with long exposure photography, which I like was my first love in photography. Uh, it's that like light painting kind of stuff. And um, I kind of love that when I first started. Um, it was very fun and and like, felt very creative for me and it could be like a mess and like it could be very busy jackson pollock was a huge influence on me back then and so it was nice to be able to try to create that you know and this makes sense with why you're so eloquent with like where your inspirations are from too if you had like a full in-depth that you actually liked art history lens mm. um art historians are the best at being able to like see inspirations and trends and all that so Look at that. I'm getting to know you more. Oh, thanks. Um, yeah, one of them, Alfred Stieglitz was another one that was a huge influence on me. And I like I liked his stuff because he was like, it was right after the impressionistic period. It's like early 1900s. And photography's coming to its own. And he would do these things where he would go to New York City and like when it just had rained, and he would take pictures of that and it would give this kind of mood 
painting-y feeling, but his photography is super fucking cool. Awesome, actually. Yeah, because of, so the, another awesome part, too, is that, like, usually I have, like, a million follow-up questions, but you explain yourself so well, and I never really have any. And I'm like, wow, I feel so choppy tonight because you really just answer everything so well. Oh, um, thanks. Sorry, world. <laughs> but I'm not going to pad the show. Uh, <laughs> congrats, Matt. You stumped me. So <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so... You said you start with like a point and shoot camera before you know everyone had phones. So one of the things I was wondering is people that have photography, some people have like all these camera bags and special equipment. Like, do you have all that jazz or like are you just using your phone now? Um Yes, I, I do have all that jazz. Uh but the best camera is the one you have with you. So if that's where you're starting with phone photography, do it. Because especially nowadays, there's all kinds of cool apps that you can do all kinds of cool art with. Um, my, the thing I have with me was a little point and shoot. And I, I decided for a while, I only have expensive hobbies, right? Like I have audio, which is very expensive. And then I have photography, which is even more expensive. And now I have, yeah, right. And now I have a, a Sony, uh, a seven R four. And I just got a brand new lens that goes from 20 millimeter, uh, yeah, 20 to 70 millimeters. And that's very expensive and it's all great. And like, but I've been doing this for 20 years. So I like finally decided to like do the upgrade to it. Uh, but otherwise for the longest time I was just doing what I had around, which was like the point and shoot. And then I went to like the Canon, that was a Canon a 70. And then I went to a, a Canon G six, which is like this prosumer camera that they used to have. And then I just had my iPhone for a really long time. And then I upgraded to a, or a, a, uh, two-thirds frame camera, Sony A6000, and I very quickly upgraded to a full frame, which I think, like, really elevated my work in a lot of ways. I mean, the, the, the camera doesn't make the artist, but, like, once you feel like you're ready, you'll know when to upgrade and, like, when you feel like you're ready for the next step. Yeah, that's so true. I know a couple of the photographers, and they're like, you just know when you're ready. So that phrase yeah. echoes well. Great. So... I know you're mostly like a landscaper and travel photographer, but I like to ask this to everyone who comes on is, do you have any tips for those of us who can't pose well in photography? Oh yeah. Um, just like, like shoot a lot, right? Like just like if you're making a pose or whatever, or like you're finding your spot, just continually shoot as you're trying to find the pose, right? Just like set a bunch of pictures. So it just rapid fire goes, boo, do, 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 do. And then you can just move through it. And like when you're in pictures, you'll see like a like a flipbook effect of like you going through your poses or like a strobe light light effect. And then you'll find one that you're like, oh, that moment right there was perfect. And so just like don't worry about wasting space on your card. Just like hold it down and you'll find the moment. Awesome. Uh yeah. Uh the whole reason why I like to ask people that is it's very known. I am not the best. Still, still poser? I don't know what they call it. Oh, God, it's blanking on me. I don't know. I can do action shots. I cannot do, like, a pose and go. Um, I, and I think that's part of it, right? Like, it's it, as the photographer, you have to know your subject to know, like, what they're good at. And the whole point is, like, it's a collaboration between you and your 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 subject. So, you, like, just let them work what works best for them. 
and uh, if that if you're good for action, then just keep moving, and I'll adjust to you. Boom. Um, yeah. And last part of the photographer section, unless I think of something later, is that Matt's super like humble about this, guys. But Matt's won awards, so I'm wondering what awards have you won? Oh, it's so. There's a funny thing about awards. Uh, once you win a award, an award, you're an award-winning photographer. And I, I won one from a, a shot I did, but I got in like third place in a photography contest uh, that was near my parents' hometown. And so it's just like, they're like, there's a photography contest happening. I was like, I was in grad school at the time and I just submitted this photo that I thought was really good and it got third place. And now I'm an award-winning photographer. So it's like nothing special, but you know, it, it looks good on the Instagrams when you're trying to get more work and build it all up, right? Exactly. No, because you understand, we've apparently throughout this conversation mentioned the hustle and how we're both excellent at making ourselves look great. Um, no, that's why on my bio, I don't put it in my resume, but I am an award-winning choreographer. And nice. I then clarify to people, all my awards were given to me by the people on paper plates, like the students. But <laughs> it's an award. So I put it in my bio because yeah. I want that acknowledged. Exactly, oh, you should. And then, like, year, oh, oh I'm sorry. Oh, I was just uh, saying, last year they bought a dollar store trophy, actually, so there is a physical trophy now. That's great. And, like, I was driving, I was I was back to my parents' uh, home, I was back where my parents live, and we were driving around, and they're like, oh, that's the art museum that had the uh, photography contest. I think your photo is hanging in there. I was like, that's cool. That's great. <laughs> I have to go and visit my photos sometime. You are the second person to have work in a museum on the show, so congrats. Oh, thanks. <laughs> Actually, you're the first person to edit your own work. This other person, um, everyone go back and listen to, oh, God, Maria Fraser's episode, and she'll tell you all about how her grandfather's hand is in the Alamo. Oh, shit. That's a lot. I think I saw that hand when I was at the Alamo. Oh, wow. Oh, my God. I'm going to... DM her later because she would love it. So that for those who are wondering, okay, here's the story. Um, so Maria Frazier, uh, despite the name sounding, is actually Mexican. Uh, Frazier, I, I assume her married, or maybe it's her pen name. Look, I don't know. Point is, is that when they were painting a mural in the Alamo, they needed a hand model and they wanted someone with a darker complexion. And her grandpa was like nearby or something. So they painted his hand. So her grandfather's hand is in the Alamo. That's awesome. I, I, yeah, I remember that mural, mural distinctly. Oh my god, I am. She's gonna flip out. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. So, congrats. You have a connection to that hand now. There we go. But um, oh yeah. So one of the big reasons you and I were able to connect so fast is you kind of mentioned it before is that we're both adoptees. Hey. Yeah. So care to share your story? Uh, yeah, uh, happy to. Um, it's a dark story, to be honest. Uh, I don't know, like, trigger warnings for SA, uh, and that kind of stuff. Um, I, I'm a product of SA, um, and it was pretty shameful for my mom, understandably, my bio mom. Uh, so I was, there's like a, a great hospital in the town I, I was I was conceived in or where my bio mom grew up in, but I was given, but she gave birth 40, 45 minutes away in Rockville and uh, in Rockville, Maryland. Uh, and so 
uh, and I was adopted out of state before I was born. And the way my bio mom connected with my adopted parents was through my aunt, my mom's oldest sister. Uh, she worked at the Food and Drug Administration and the um, friends of my bio mom's family also worked at the Food and Drug Administration. And they connect, they're like, oh yeah, we know someone who wants to adopt their kid, who wants their kid to be adopted. Uh, and then my parents are like, great, we want someone to be adopted. And um, then I, all the stuff was signed and uh, settled before I was born. I was two weeks late and I was shipped, like my parents were there staying at my uh, aunt's place in Christmas day. To dim, wasn't born, I was due Christmas day, or I was a week, I was a week late. And then uh, they got a phone call. I was on New Year's Day or New Year's Eve day that I was born. And then they drove back down to Maryland and picked me up. And they exchanged me. They couldn't do the exchange at the hospital. They had it because, like, the hospital like does not want that to happen. You know, a hospital selling babies seems like suspect. Uh, so they had to do it at the church across the street. And my uh, my bio grandmother handed me off to my adoptive parents. Wow. Okay. So does that mean yours is open, closed? I guess it depends on how you mean uh, open. My parents, my adoptive parents sent photos. This is in 1983. So a open adoption wasn't really a thing back then. But my parents sent photos of me up until I was 12 to my buyer who would then like display them on the fridge or give them to my bio mom. I don't really know what happened, but my, but my adopt, my biological grandmother was moving house and she sent my parents a letter saying, uh, I'm moving. Um, we really appreciate the pictures all these years. It's really great. Uh, Matt's bio mom found somebody knows that I, the husband knows I exist. Um, and you know what? Uh, I'm moving, so I won't be able to receive these anymore. And she didn't send a forwarding address. She didn't like include a new address. So it was like, okay, I guess we're not sending photos anymore. Uh, even though my bio mom lived in the same house for most of the years, but though that all gets complicated. My bio mom comes from a very large family. Um, and so then after I was 12, we, they didn't, uh, get any photos, but I kept asking. I kept being like, "Who's my mom? Who's my mom? You seem to know my mom. What is this?" And so when I turned eighteen, we had a phone. I had a phone call with my bio mom, and that's where I started my reunion story with her. Um, and then uh, that was in like December, and then February I got to meet her, and that was cool. And that was really great. That's fast. Yeah, it was fast. I, I can't remember if it was that February or February after. I can't remember. I think it was that February. Um, I think my bio mom thought that oh, I'll, I'll meet Matt and they'll be fine, and then he'll move on with his life, and I'll, I'll move on with mine. Uh, I think it was like a like a kind of like a one and done kind of thing. Uh, so then I went to college because you know I was going to college in Boston, and um, and then after Boston, it just so happened that the dean of my theater school was the artistic director of Only Theater Company in washington dc so i decided i was like oh i'll move to washington dc i have like my you know well i had a lot of family in dc at the time and i was like oh i'll move closer to them and i'll also be closer to my bio mom who lived in western maryland um and so we got like 
I moved down there. I thought I was going to get a lot of work at Olney. I didn't get any work at Olney. Uh, so I had to make my own way in the, the DC theater scene, which was actually a really great thing because I got to work at Woolly Mammoth and Theater J and Gala Hispanic Theater. Um, and I got to see my bio mom a few times a year. It was like roughly twice a year. Um, and I lived in DC for four years and then I was going to grad school all this time. Like my bio mom stayed in touch. She sent me letters. She wished me happy birthday. She sent me, uh, cards that were signed by my two half sisters. It was very, it was very nice and very touching. Uh, so when I said, Hey, I'm moving to new Haven to go to grad school. I want to meet my bio sisters. And I thought that like, that would have been fine because they know about me. Turns out they had never, they didn't know about me at all. And I was still a secret. And like that I was like, even the fact that I was in nearby was a secret to everyone. Um, and so she's like, not, not this time. I was like, okay. And so I, uh, uh, before uh, like, and this is right at like the last, uh, in October, I was getting married. This was in the summer in October. I was getting married. I invited her to the wedding. She doesn't come to the wedding. She doesn't respond, in fact. And then, like, throughout my time in grad, I invited her to my thesis presentation because I had to do, like, a performance kind of thing. And I invited her to various other milestones in my life. Uh, but she was very much kept me at arm's length as soon as I moved away. And um, it was very weird because I didn't know I was a product of sexual assault uh, at that time. And I was like, okay, well, well fine. Uh, and then, um, my son was born. I was like, Hey, you want to meet my son? No response, no response, no response. Like your grand, I said, but your grandson, I kind of made it a little like personal because I was, this is like over the course of, I went to grad school in 2010. My son was born in 2015. Uh, and I, I met her in 2002. So it's like 10 years, 10 years, 13 years of reunion. And uh, she's like, oh, that's no, a busy time for me. It just kept keeping me at arm's length. So eventually it came to realize that I, they didn't, my house siblings did not know I existed. During the pandemic, I reached out to one of them and it started out fine. And then my bio mom sent me this email being like, you cannot talk to people. You have to go through me to talk to your family. And I was like, well, that's not fair at all. They're my family too. And I stood up for myself and I was aggressive. Uh, not aggressive, but I stood up for myself. I defended myself. And uh, that was too much for my mom. And um, from there, she went no contact. And my half-sister went no contact. And um, I think she's basically told the rest of the family to stay away from me. Even I'm I'm in contact with one, two of my bio cousins now. And through that, I try to reach out to other bio cousins. I try to stay away from one of my half sisters, my younger one, because she's young and I didn't want to like blow up her spot. Right. But she found out through me reaching out to the older siblings, I kind of like had an age cut off and none of them responded. Um, but they, but my younger half sister found out and she said, I was never told this for very like, and you know what? I'm sure there was great reasons for it. If, if they never wanted to tell me, I would have been fine with that, which I find like, really aggressive and and like shooting the messenger kind of thing and it, she gave a, a lot of crap to my bio cousin who i'm in a relation who i talked to and that's really nice it's like my only connection to my my mother's side of the bio family um 
And I felt really bad that she got a bunch of, like she told my bio cousin that she was betraying this family who loves you, cares about you because you're talking to me. And I was like, I think like, it seems like my bio mom has like really gotten a, just because of one email has misinterpreted the whole like thing of it. But which is the shame to say, right. I don't expect or I don't require friendship. They don't have to have a relationship with me, but the fact that they like, barely have talked to me and already don't is depressing to be honest. Yeah, I can see that. Um, I'm in kind of a similar situation, but not necessarily like the whole no contact barrier, mm. more of just like the distance and language barrier. Oh, um, sure. Yeah. How did you find your family? Okay. So I've always known, Oh, that's the question I wanted to ask you too. I've always known I was adopted like mm. from like day one. My parents are very open about it. And then when we went and adopted my sister when I was three, like they were like explaining like, hey, we're going to adopt. This is what happened with you. We're just like, I'm not going to have a baby. We're going to go get one. Wow. Home and stuff. And I was like three and I was like, oh, okay, whatever. Yeah. Like I was seven months old when I was adopted. So (laughs) according to my knowledge, like never knew anything different. Totally. So I have a very great adoption story. I would like to point that out. Because I know there are many out there who have very different opinions about their adoption. I'm totally down and happy and fine with mine. So just like to PSA that. Totally. Uh, but yeah, actually, when I was like a year old. So my birthday is December 6th. Oh, nice. Yeah. So it's always around Christmas. And my bio mom in Hong Kong reached out to her social worker who reached out to the social worker in New York. And that was like, because it was a it was a closed adoption. But the social workers are like, okay, she kind of wants info if you're willing, but you're not legally required to or right. have to. But my mom was like, we just like had his birthday party and like, here's this, we have Christmas cards. Here you go. You're on the list now. And that That's happened cool. for like eight years around like when I was like four, like a little bit, a couple years after we adopted my sister, I started getting curious. I'm like, what does she look like? Because apparently I'm 10 years younger than you. So I'm like 93 or 83. Yeah, yeah. Right yeah. on. So before the time of social media, I was like, what does she look like? Like, blah, 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 blah. So yeah. she sent like a bunch of pictures to us. And then That's we just cool. lost contact for like eight years. And then we found her on Facebook. And nice. so we're Facebook friends. That's awesome. <laughs> a huge language barrier. Oh, yeah, but yeah, yeah. Likes are the same in all languages, we've learned. So That's a sweet but, way to put it. Yeah. Uh, I also have two uncles because I was a 16 and pregnant situation. Right on. So like that, that was my reason. <laughs> um, but she has two younger brothers of, he was, one was 14, one was 12 when I was born. Whoa. So I have an uncle who I look like his twin. I'll send you photos later. I'd love um, to see him. Yeah. I call him my uncle twin. Cause we look just alike. That's so cool. Yeah. Um, but yeah, he's only 12 years older than me. Uh, they're both on my Instagram and Facebook and like, they like all my stuff. That's great. Yeah. So, but the, another part of similarity is I have a ton of half siblings. I found out. Oh shit. (laughs) Yeah. And so I was like, oh, okay. Half siblings. Um, do they know I exist? Mm. And she was like, not because I don't want them to know. They're just really young. Right. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. So I I guess I could ask her nowadays because I think the youngest is eight now. Oh, yeah. 
as they started getting Facebooks, I started getting like their people you may know because I'm like, okay, I have like three or four mutual friends with these kids now. Are yeah. they ever gonna fig- like ask who's this random American on their like mom's Facebook? So my uncle, yeah. Yeah, or like, yeah, because I'm friends with two uncles and yeah, whole thing, but not my story to well, I guess it is technically my story, but whatever, let them live. Um, I'm not in a rush because I don't have a travel bug, so I'm not like desperate to go meet her or anything. Right. I'm like, I'll I'll keep liking your Disney World pictures because they're always at Disney World for some reason. That's funny. Yeah, so I just like their Disney photos. She likes all my like random photos I post. Oh, that's <laughs> so, great. Does she listen to the podcast? She doesn't speak English. That's funny. So I I wonder if she would just listen anyway. uh, I don't think it's like that. Gotcha. Also, her kids are like in the primetime age where they're all about to start activities. Got it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think she's about to. But her new husband knows about me, apparently. Oh, good. And is all hunky dory with that. Apparently, he's also a professional photographer. Oh, that's great. Nice. Yeah, and I could kind of tell based on this, some of their Disney photos. I'm like, this is not what you're paying for. <laughs> like, but yeah, also he has like super long hair that he dyes blonde. So I was like, oh, he's kind of hippie-ish for the area. That's awesome. Yeah, because he's Chinese too. So gotcha. I was like, oh, cool. Uh, but yeah, that's my adoption story. Um, how old? What's the age difference between you and Bio, Mom? Uh, she was 19 when she had me, so she's 19 years old, older than me. Um, yeah, I was, I was, I mean, my parent, my adoptive parents are great. Uh, they're very supportive. I told them I went to go to art school and they're like, great, do it. I told them I want to go to art school again. And they were like, yeah, great. And then like, they're still very supportive of me and my work and all that kind of stuff. I could have said like, I go to, cl- I want to go to clown college and they would, they would say, yeah, do it. Um, but like I discovered I had a lot of trauma with my adoption when my son was born because we were going through like skin to skin and breastfeeding and how important that is. And like, it's super important. It's like the most important thing you can do. And I realized I was like, Oh, I never got any of that. Oh, I literally like, as soon as I was born, I was not doing any of that. None of those things. And um, that started like to screw me up a little bit and like be self-destructive and do some self-destructive thing uh and it made me realize that like i had to process my adoption and the pain of it because like all before that i thought i was fine um and i thought i was like like totally chill with my adoption and it, and it took me a while to figure that out um and now i think i think i have processed that in some ways i think it also was cathartic to stand up to my bio mom even if i was probably re-triggering her without knowing it. Cause when I sent that email to her standing up for myself, I didn't know I was a product of sexual assault. In fact, she has still never told me it's, I had to hear about it through my bio cousin's mom. Who's one of the sisters who was there when I was born. And she also told her, she also told, uh, she also told my bio cousin that, uh, that, um, uh, not to tell me that. So that's like, I, and, and like, that's another part of my trauma I had to process. Luckily I was, it was during lockdown when I found that out and I could like have time to sit and process that. I think I moved on. I think I've like figured that out though. It's still pretty hard and like figured like dealing with that of who I am and 
where I come from kind of thing. Uh, but now it's processing the trauma of my, of the, the re-rejection from my bio mom, which has been probably the hardest part right now. And it's like this, these layers of trauma that I'm, I'm trying to work through, uh, figure that out. Yeah. And that's very understandable. Um, yeah, I hear stories and like things like this, especially how you said you thought you were okay. And I get slightly nervous. I'm like, God, am I taking time bomb too? Am I going to discover some trauma of my own one day? But I also have traumatized birth fam <laughs> over my thing, which was a surprise to me. So like I said, I've known I was adopted my whole life, right? What I didn't know is that I had a sister. And so I was like, okay, cool. Maybe she's like my bio dad, like kid that just appeared on 23 Me. So I messaged her and I was like, hey, who are you? And then she's like, wait, who are you? And I was like, apparently we're siblings. Are we half oh, siblings? Shit. Like, what is this deal? Are you like dad's side? Like, what? Do you know I exist? And she was like, no, I'm adopted. I was like, how old are you? She's 13 months younger than me. Whoa. And so I was like, hold up. What? Okay, so you have to be one of the parents. Because, you know, for those who don't know, when you do DNA testing, for those who are born with XX chromosomes, they don't carry a Y chromosome to trace their male lineage. Or not male, but, you know, typically male, cis male. I'm trying to be pronoun inclusive here, people. Go with me. Um, it's hard <laughs> in language. But, yeah, so my sister... Like, it only showed up as, like, 56%, because I was like, okay, cool. We can trace, you know, all the lineage. I'm not a biologist. I didn't know. I was just like, I don't know what, 50%. So I assumed it was yeah. my birth dad, who I don't have a lot of contact with. We're also Facebook friends. The only contact we've had is he sent me Candy Crush requests during that era. Um, Whoa. So I was like, okay, cool. So I messaged birth mom, and I was like, um, who is this? And she's like, oh, no, you have a full sister. And I was like, you people were 16 and broken up before I was born. How on earth do I have a full sister? And she was like, it didn't stick. <laughs> the breakup. I was like, well, you're not together now, so. Whoa, that's a lot. But that was, but I felt bad because, so I found out that my sister also grew up in Hong Kong. So she was like a domestic adoption while I was like sent off. Right. So I was like, oh my God, wait. Okay, so do you know our birth fam? And she's like, wait, you know our birth family? Oh, shit. I know. So I, like, trauma dumped accidentally triggered her because it's like, here's your whole family. Wow. But she knew I existed because in her paperwork, it said she had an older brother that was adopted out. Oh, wild. So she knew about me. I didn't know about her, but I knew the family and she didn't know the family. But it also turns out that my sister's adoptive mom works in the same building as Uncle Twin whoa so it was whoa. a it was a big night for her i felt really bad oh my god that's wild it's and it just goes to show like how adoption can like create so much separation and yet and like without all these dna testing things we would never have found each other you know nope um on the bright side though sister and i were like besties too that's <laughs> awesome oh yeah i'm oh, so, so happy for you yeah. Um, I feel happy for her because she's actually like an only child. Like I have my adoptive sibling who we're besties too. We live together, like going strong. We just went to Disney together on like a sibling trip. So oh, dope. Like, yeah. But uh a bio sister over there. Um turns out we had very similar life paths. 
Mm. Uh, I am a therapist, for those who don't know. And she is a worker at a men's health clinic. Mental health oh, clinic. Oh, wild. So I was like, wait, you're in psych too? Oh, crap. Okay. So we talk about a lot of, lot of random similar interests. And yeah. That's so cool. Yeah, like my... My mom works in IT. One of like all of them are musicians. All of my cousins are musicians, and like uh, as a sound designer, it's a very technical role, and like a lot of like computery stuff that I have to deal with, and it's also a very artistic kind of side, musical kind of stuff. And so, like meeting my my bio mom and her family and a few of the uncles. One of them is also a professional photographer. It like clicked into place for me of who I who I am and where I came from in a big big way because my adoptive parents are all sports people. Like my mom was a lacrosse coach, tennis coach. My dad played basketball, and he was a te- and they're both teachers. Um, and like for me, like I was like, no, I'm a musician. I'm an artist. I'm this thing, which is not. And like my my adoptive mom's side are all engineers. My uh, adoptive dad side they're all salespeople, and so it's like i'm not any of those people i am like very strictly this this other side this uh and it's it's very surreal to like be like oh i was cast out from this family but i'm still very much this family and it really proves how much how important genetics like shape you and who you are yeah no i feel that too like my adoptive family they're all electricians wow and like i went to work with my mom for a week because she needed extra help like at her small business she was working at and she literally turned to me like the friday as she was driving us home she's like don't quit college you are not cut <laughs> out for this <laughs> you're not cut out for any of the trades and i was like i wasn't planning on it but thank you for acknowledging that i tried my best <laughs> so but like uh, yeah i just thought it was like the difference of like being super gay versus they're all not but um, no, maybe it is that too. You're right. Uh, that literally my entire mom's side is electricians. That's and wild. Bled into my dad's side too. Yeah, they like find each other, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, no, my ta- I don't know exactly what my birth parents' talents are, but I do see what they're interested in. So, well, I see birth mom's interests, and me, bio sister, and birth mom are all boy band obsessed. Apparently, what we discovered oh. randomly. When That's amazing. On Facebook. So yeah, just random little interest. It's fascinating, like what can and may pop up versus not. Truly. Yeah. It, it really answers the nature versus nurture question. See, but then they come up with other ways. I don't know. Nature versus nurture is so psych that I like have so many like minor traumas of reading too many studies i would say yeah i get it <laughs> uh, that it's like you know no just let it be world um i will let someone that's on into the psych research find that out yeah because research is not my thing either i need to talk to people uh <laughs> nice hence the show guys i guess um i was about to say but yeah there's a lot of different feelings of adoption and there's so many facets people have to keep in mind when it comes to like, you know, the adoption experience. We both have pretty positive, like adoptive side experiences. Like you said, your adoptive parents are super cool. Um, yeah. They were super supportive of you. I have that similarity and yet we still have our differences. Question for you is um, how do you navigate talking to other adoptees about their story? I don't even know if you do or not, but. <laughs> I, I do a lot. Um, I, I'm pretty active 
on various social networks where my uh, adoptive family is not. So like Thread or it was Twitter before Elon Musk bought it and ruined it. Um, and I would never, uh, an adoptee's experience of adoption is their own experience and I would never contradict their experience of adoption. And like, it's such a, a strong, like wide facet of that. that I wouldn't like, I, I wouldn't like try to challenge them on that. And I would, and I expect the same from other adoptees. Cause there's lots of adoptees who are like, cause when I'm on, if you find me on the social networks, I'm very much, I'm, I'm against adoption. I, I feel like it's a, as an institution, it, it's, it's not a helpful thing. I think there's other solutions to this problem that don't require the legal separation of a family um, in that way. And, um, but every adoptee has their own perspective on that and their own lived experience. And so there's a lot of adoptees who are like, why are you, why are you saying these bad things about adoption? It's like, because my lived experience suggests that. And I'm only speaking from my lived experience. I'm not saying that your experience is invalid. I'm just saying that like my, my lived experience suggests that this is the, this is this has led me to this opinion. But if you disagree, I respect your difference in opinion on that. And not you personally, just any adoptee who has that kind, that uh, various opinions on it. Oh, no, I get it. Because I'm the opposite. I'm actually pro-adoption, but I'm apparently one of the few people adopted from China that feels that way. So I get a lot of flack. <laughs> yeah. And like, you know, that's your lived experience suggests that. And I, I respect that very much. I would never try to challenge you or convince you otherwise. Um, and I, I feel like that's... The, I just want that reciprocated from other adoptees who like come in. I see this on TikTok a lot where like a lot of adoptees who are speaking about adoption as a whole, as an institution, and they get challenged by adoptees who are like, why are you talking bad? Just because you had a bad experience with adoption doesn't mean adoption's bad. And it's like, I think we can, we can, sh we can have this, it can be a whole spectrum of opinions on it and like lived and we can have lived experiences of it. My biggest thing is like the fact that like Maryland has an open adoption law now right where uh people people can get their original birth certificate see who my dad is i don't know who my dad is my bio mom knows who my dad is won't tell me which is i i honestly think rather cruel but i was born in 1983 so in maryland you have to be born in the year 2000 or later to get your original birth certificate no problem before that it's just sealed forever which is I find cruel and honestly inhumane and like these kinds of controls about my life, about a, a, a contract that I did not enter into, but was entirely about me dictates my entire life forward makes me very frustrated and angry. I fully agree with you on that. Um, no, you, I fully support you having a right to know who you come from and all that. And thank you. I appreciate that. Uh, yeah. Um, also, that's another different dynamic between us. You're domestic. I'm international. Yeah. If it's a call domestic on your side, that's what the international side calls. <laughs> yeah. Like, I mean, domestic. you know, I'm a cis white male, so I I am happy to to take on the other like ways to describe it. I don't have like you know I don't I feel like my privilege doesn't let me name things. You know what I mean? Like I I rather take other people's perspectives on. And I think domestic adoptee is fine. Uh, yeah, it might be an outdated term. I haven't heard anything different since like 2000. So yeah, same. I've used so. I think it works great. People, um, if you are listening, feel free to correct me. I'm open to learn as well.
but yeah, no, because I have a lot of international dynamics because, you know, because I'm technically from Hong Kong, which was China, but not China. Yeah. Uh, I get a lot of like, we're victims of one child policy. And I was like, no, it was just a teenage pregnancy guy. Sorry. <laughs> um, also, Hong Kong didn't have that. Don't know what to say. Uh, yeah. Sorry. And then I get the whole other flack of the fact that I know my birth family so easily. And I'm like, sorry, guys, I'm colonized. Um, I was literally never a citizen of China. My birth certificate and passport of adoption was British. <laughs> I was wow. a British subject. It says British Hong Kong across the whole thing. And my birth records are all in English and Chinese. So it's super easy for me to track down my family. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That makes so interesting about how like you're you're from a culture but it like because of politics has changed that culture and has like created another layer for you to have to dig through and process that's amazing i think it's a fascinating story too but i totally am very open on my guys i get it i am like literally like lightning bottle type story that like because i also think this too i got super lucky with my adoption that i went to new york of all places I went to a family that was super okay with gay. Like, yeah. I could have ended up in Alabama or some Louisiana swamp or something. Yeah, or, especially now that, like, religious groups are pushing adoption as a kind of, like, uh, savioring or saving and, and uh, what's that term called? Uh, proselytizing. Or... Oh, good word. I was thinking saving. <laughs> yeah. But... No, but... You're entirely right. Actually, that was a whole thing I said, like, growing up, too. My parents are like, if we said we were going to save a kid, they would never have let us adopt in New York. No. Yeah. So, and I was like, oh, okay. My parents are very... I think my parents have some, like, minor trauma through the adoption process because how long it took. <laughs> oh, like, yeah. But, like, you know, is there such thing as minor trauma? I don't know. And neither will they because they don't like to process it either. But, <laughs> I don't yeah, know. Yeah, but... My mom, my adoptive mom was, you know, infertile and she never processed that, right? Like I'm the one who cured her infertility, but that's impossible to put on a baby. And like a lot of, uh, like even doctors and uh, gynecologists like suggest, oh, if you're having trouble conceiving, why don't you adopt? And it's like, that's not a solution to that problem, right? Like that's like, those are two separate things. You should process your infertility first and then Cause there's so much like I talked to so many adoptees who I got who are, who are the same kind of thing. And they, they have to have so much pressure put on them because like, you're like my only child, you have to be perfect. I got a little bit of that where my dad was like, kept me very sheltered and very like, uh, I was like a precious stone and that, and like that pushed me away from them ultimately and prevented me from having a stronger connection with them because they want to kept me so close. And it's like, they never wanted. To, they always saw me as me they got as opposed to a human being that is different than them. And that's like something so hard for I, I imagine adoptive parents to deal with. Yeah, and that's another thing I think I also got super lucky about because everything you're saying is like so common in adoptee life. My parents were the exact opposite of that. They just were like, nope, we're gonna. I don't know. They just never wanted us to feel that we were different or that's not great. theirs and. Honestly, it surprises me sometimes because some of the things I see them do with their, you know, living their natural life, I'm like, huh, is that healthy? But yet through this adoption, I'm like, okay, well, at least I ended up fine because of that mentality. But there's some other things, you know, everyone's spectrum. Everyone okay. has their balances. 
but that's a question I didn't ask you yet. Are you an only child? I am an only child. Yeah. Uh, by the time they were, by the time they, they sorted it out, I, they were too old, I think, to like adopt again. And also they're both teachers, so they didn't make a lot of money, you know, so it's not going to, I think eventually it becomes like an affordability thing. No, it definitely is. My parents wanted four to six kids, but after the adoption, they were like, two's enough <laughs> financially. Yeah, I mean, that's the other thing, right? Like, I don't know if you have this, but I have like a bill of what I cost, like of all the lawyer fees and all that at the end of the day. And it's like, yep, yeah, okay. Uh, that was uh, $26,000 in 1983. Damn it, you're more than me. I'm 25. <laughs> uh, I made it. I mean, like, I'm, I could be off by a few thousand, but like, that's, it's wild. Uh, like how much it costs for that kind of stuff. Hold on, wait. Um, let's see how much that is today. <laughs> oh yeah, let's do that. I was just about to think about that. Wait, I should put the dollar sign now so that it would. Okay, so twenty six thousand dollars and forty years ago. Forty years ago? Are you forty? I'm gonna be forty in December. Yeah. Oh, hey, we're both December babies. Yeah. Okay, so. $26,000 in 1983 is equivalent to 80000 a day. Oh, my God. That is so much money. Holy right. shit. Hold on. I'm doing me now. Yeah, okay. please. $25,000 in 1993 is 53000 Oh, my God. You're worth, like, $27,000 more than me. I've never done that math. Mind-blowing that they spent nearly $100,000 on a baby. And, and like, no wonder they kept me so precious. <laughs> Does that change your perspective on it? I mean, it, it, honestly, it makes me give them a little bit more credit at the end of the day. Oh, I give my parents a ton of credit because uh, not even the financial piece, but I don't think a lot of people talk about this, but my parents had a ton of surprise visits. Oh, really? Oh, my God, yes. Their social worker was like, we're going to do surprise visits at least once a month. It was a lot more than once. Wow. Um, just to make sure the house, and it was like eight months of it. Wow. So like my adoption process before they even had like the go to go get me was nine months. Yeah. So I call it like pseudo pregnancy time period, just because the time period, like the amount of like effort my parents had to demonstrate, like part of the inspection was that the house was like baby proof, that they had an actual room for me set up. Yeah. And I was like, wow. And it wasn't even me because I wasn't even like offered as like the photo yet. Yeah. It was just a baby. <laughs> that's that's great. I mean, like you hear horror stories of people who were brought over and kept in a locked room in a garage with no heat. Like, thank God there's I, I don't know if my parents had social worker visits or not. I'm gonna guess none in 1983. Uh but yeah, it took them about a year, I think, to finalize the adoption and everything. Oh, fun fact though, too, is that because of one child policy, my sister took over a year. Oh, because sure. they already had me. And my parents are like, well, we don't live in China. And he's also from Hong Kong. So I don't know what you want, China. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. So that's, that's how they got my sister. That's great. Yeah. We are so like off the topic of you, too. But I don't know. This has been great. I really appreciate this conversation. It's been me, great. too. That's why we, I think we've just flowed so well. Like, I haven't had anyone on yet that was a domestic adoption. or Oh, really? Yeah. Because everyone, the people that come to me are like, hey, a fellow international adoptee. I'm like, hey. That's um, awesome. But yeah, 
Also, the fact that you are so open and comfortable talking about it. I get a lot of people that want to come and talk about they're not as prepared as mind wellness as we are. I appreciate that. I mean, I've, I've been in reunion for 20 years and I, I was always new as adopted and I was open with it as a kid because I didn't know I was supposed to hide it. Same. I think, yeah. Oh yeah, because that was the thing for me too. I thought being adopted was super cool. Yeah, me too. Yeah. I thought it like, made me special because that's like what we're told. Yeah, I still believe it, but yeah. <laughs> I was like, I was chosen. Also because my parents are very open about like, no, this is the effort we had to put in to get you. Not in a guilt way, but just like, uh, be happy that we don't have to like, keep this like level of always be ready on guard kind of thing yeah yeah i didn't have that as much either that's yeah that that is a but like i do i have recently like as part of processing the trauma adoption is letting go of the like get like because again my dad like you're a special like didn't never said you're a special stone but treated me like that right and then being like i had to be grateful because i have a life because they adopted me and then when I met more and more of my bio family, I was like, oh, they actually, they're fine. It was literally a shame that they didn't want me. It wasn't because she was too poor or couldn't do it or too young. It was just like, literally, she was little young, not 16, but 19, which is young. Uh, Close enough, I say. And then also like, you know, they were well off. They were upper middle class. And so it's not like you we've saved you from poverty or it's like, oh, it's helped me like get rid of that kind of like guilt or I owed my adoptive parents something. I mean, I'm very, I'm very appreciative of their generosity and kindness that they've given me, but I don't feel like I owe them something in that way. No, and that's awesome, too, because I think that's a lot of the unprocessed stuff from people that I see online. Yeah, they're just first of all just so angry that they were put up for adoption, as they say, victims of one-child policy and all that stuff. That I don't even think they get into that mindset of like the gratitude, guilt owed of the adoptive parents. And yeah, I think I'm just so conceited sometimes that I never felt that truly. Yeah, <laughs> I'm like I'm I a gift that. to you. Like you said it, you wanted me. Like I had that congrats. same kind of thought. Yeah, yeah, that was me too. Yeah, cool. I, I think it's. I think a lot of adoptees don't put the human like the like. It took me a long time until I was like older, like in my thirties, and in my mid thirties, to figure out like, like an experience, like the challenges that that like come up with life, and being like, oh, this is why my parents did that. Oh, this is why my biomom did that. It's not the like story we tell ourselves, right? It's like, no, no, they. She just. She, she, the family felt shame, she felt shame, and she didn't want a reminder of what happened to her. And that is that is the motivation. Not like she wanted a better life than me. She loved me so much. Give me up. And my parents were like, we picked you. They didn't pick me. It's just the connection came up and it was convenient for them and it was like worked out because they've been looking forever, right? So it's like, you just have to realize that that's what the reality is. And actually, come to think of it, it wasn't even one of my mid-30s. It was like when I was talking to other adoptees online during the pandemic where we just like found people on Twitter and we started talking and they're like, Oh yeah, it's not, I was picked it, though. I think they feel very special that I'm theirs and that like, there is that feeling of that, but it was, it could have been someone else. It very easily could have been someone else. And that, and that like put a lot of perspective on adoption for me and erased this kind of like magical thinking around it, which 
I found better allow me to process it. Totally agree. Um, I that I kind of said it before. I was like, that's why I just feel so lucky personally, just because my story is great, guys. Like, I can't really twist it to be like some, I don't know, empathetic thing. Like, I know some people when they come on shows, like I don't know, I'm speaking generally now, I guess they like to relate more to the guests and like you know try and like find weird abstract full connections like i don't know you probably see it on daytime talk shows too where like the host is like making some statement you're like what are they talking about trying to connect like so unrelatable stop in the essence of adoption i can't really say but that's why i like having the show to let people's other stories and experiences come through just because my adoption literally could be like a golden shiny example under a spotlight but that's not everyone's and i like letting people talk about it yeah, it's, it's great. It's great you give us this platform. I really appreciate it. Yeah. Um, is there anything else you want to say while we're thinking about <laughs> all the aspects of adoption? Um, I, one last thing is just like the fact that we have to give up our DNA to find out where we come from is is like frustrating. The fact that like that's one of the only ways because of the laws and stuff as from finding that out that like I'm in the process of finding my bio dad which I haven't told very many people about this at all, but I had to do it through ancestry DNA because that's the only way we're going to find out because my bio mom won't tell me and uh, which is fine. You know, that's, I respect her choice. I think it's unfair, but I respect it. Um, and so I have to give up my DNA forever to uh, find out human connections. And it's just, it just seems like every, and everyone else uh, can just know. The kept can know. That's another. Do you, what do you do? You like the term kept? It's very controversial. Okay, what does it mean? <laughs> That's the my people, of... people who don't give, who are not given up for adoption, or like uh, legal guardianship or uh, foster care, and all that. Oh, okay, yeah, I never heard that term before. Um, okay, what kept? No, I think it's a fine term. Like they're literally kept. Like right. We're literally uh, adopted. They're literally kept. Like I don't know what you want to say. Like, a lot of people who are like from their their bio, like know their biological family or like live with their grew up with their biological family, really find it offensive. And it's like it's funny because like we don't think of adoptees as like like a minority group or like a like a like a special like a a, a, a class of people, and. Um, it, every every class of people has a term for the majority of people, and I think that's funny. I think it's funny that the doesn't know that ever, and even like adoptees have a term like kept to separate themselves from, or not separate, but to like help delineate those terms. Those I was about to say it's the same thing when we came up with cis. Yes, like cis people, like we just did, we had to come up with a term to differentiate, like. <laughs> So it's yeah, funny. I, I think kept is fine. Um, if you do disagree, shoot me reasons why it's disagreeable. I'm open to listen, <laughs> but you're literally kept by your bio parents. Like, I don't know what you want me to say. Yeah. I, I like the term too. I don't, I don't, I use it amongst adoptees. I don't use it amongst uh, kept people anymore. Cause when I bring it up in conversation, they're like, what? I'm like, never mind. <laughs> Sorry. I thought we, I thought you'd be cool with it because you're like liberal minded and open, but no, okay, never mind. I'm about to go test this on my parents. Oh boy. All right, good luck. 
honestly, I don't think they'd care. They'd probably be like, oh, another term. All right. <laughs> <laughs> like, where'd you find this one? Um, but, oh, yeah, because my parents are on the older end. I don't know how old your parents were or your age gap between you and your parents. They're 30 years older than me. Ah. Yeah, right. actually, they're more. They're 34 years older than me. Mine are 33 years older than me. Nice. So, yeah, we have very similar, just 10 years apart skewed. Yeah, age. for sure. And similar, like, adoptive age stories, I should say. 1916. Like, yeah. Yeah. Um, did we answer your original next point about the kept? <laughs> yeah, we did. Oh, okay. For sure. I was like, God, did I miss it? Because I was so, like, caught up about the term. <laughs> I, I it's not often that i find a new term so there you go oh i'm excited now to use it <laughs> i'll let be you careful. know what be, eh, careful I do? I uh, do? Uh, yeah fair that's a fair um, point i have a billion other minority check marks to check off like what are you gonna do uh, <laughs> um all right so something that you neglected to put in the questionnaire that people fill out before they come on the show for those who don't know what i mean is that Matt over here is an Ivy League graduate. Oh, shit. Yeah. So <laughs> you hold a fine arts, you hold a master's of fine arts and sound design from the Yale School of Drama. I do. And, and have a bachelor's of fine arts from the Boston University. So I want to talk about your educational journey. I love hearing people's education. It's something we suffer to get. So let's gas it up, as the kids say. Oh, great. What made you want to pursue sound design in the first place? Um, it was something I was good at in high school and then it was something I was good at in college. And it was like, and then, um, I, after college, I freelanced in DC for four years and I was learning about, I was learning from great designers like Marty Desjardins and Ryan Rumry and Lindsay Jones and, um, a few other people. Uh, Marty was the, was the sound supervisor at Shakespeare theater when I was there. Um, and he went to Yale School of Drama, and uh, he talked. And then when I was in college, I met David Budrys, who founded the sound design program at Yale School of Drama. And he was great. He had such a great perspective on sound design and teaching in general. Um, and I just I enjoyed it. And I I realized I didn't know how to write music when I was gigging in DC, and so I feel like oh I got to go to grad school to learn how to write music. And by that point, the Yale School of Drama had a music teacher uh, as part of a chair in the sound design program uh matthew sutter was my uh, music teacher there he was fantastic he came from the school of music at yale um and he really knew how to like get these sound designers who could be very technical minded or very music minded or in between and could like make them music composers in their own way which is really nice and one of the other things is like I go. I went to sound design, and be like, "Oh, I'm gonna I'm gonna push faders. I'm gonna deal with microphones. I'm gonna make people sound good." And then when I was in undergrad, good uh, Garage Band came out, and that was like kind of a, a fantastic thing because like Steve Jobs was on stage. He was like, "Do you need to know music theory? No, you do not. Do you know what sounds good? Yes, you do. Then you can you can like write music with this software." And he was selling software, but it's also like an interesting philosophical point that like oh i don't need because like again bu was this very conservatory like the music school is very conser is very conservative conservatory and like i took 
a whole semester on pre-Renaissance music at BU. And it was like required. And it was like, oh my God. Like, and all the, all, I had a lot of friends in music school and they were all like, like, cause they were all going to be vocal majors or composers and stuff. And they had to take it. They had to take a full year of it. And we had to be like, can, I cannot tell you, because it's like Gregorian chant and like that kind of stuff. It's like before music theory congealed into something that we could like build on top of each other. So it's this, I was like pre-Renaissance is before anything was codified. Like you just said, yes. like, I'm, my mind's blown. How, wow. It's it. And that's like, that's a class I had to take. It was like uh, more, it was like pre-Baroque. Right. And so, and it's like, we have to find these composers who write like, and we have to like, the, some of our tests were like, they play Gregorian chant. We had to know that it was this Gregorian chant by this composer was written at this date. And they all sound the same. Like the, just the same and like i was like how do we i i did terrible in that class i did absolutely awful but like it was so like i thought that's what you had to do you had to have this stuff and just being able to hear someone say no you can just know what it sounds good and then it took like i went to like even still after graduate bu and i was geeking around i still didn't consider myself a composer i didn't write anything and so i was watching other people who knew it or knew how to fake it. I thought they were very good composers and they were, they wrote great music. Uh, and then I was talking to them about it. And they're like, yeah, I don't know that stuff. I don't know any of that stuff. And I went to, I went to grad school and Matthew never gave me the circle of fifths. He never gave me like, maybe he mentioned it, but it was like more like, what do you think is cool? Here are the tools to make things that sound cool to you. And it like, he really found where I was with my music creation and eventually led me to like write music and write like, literal sheet music which i can do now and it's like really nice also that same amount of time frame from undergrad to grad democratization of music making software was that whole period like nowadays you can write scores on your ipad and it's like five bucks or to download one of those programs and like they started at like five hundred dollars down to like a hundred dollars by the end of that 10 year 15 year span and so like that also helped and like make it easier and, and more conducive to just explore music in a lot of ways. Yeah. Um, something I want to mention too is a couple things is that one, no one has ever been and probably will never be able to convince me that undergrad music degrees are the hardest degrees on earth to get. Yeah. Like the amount of effort that people in the music departments have to put to learn every instrument on earth, um, practice outside of their normal class times to an instrument they barely know. And half of them don't even like uh, to pass that two week periods exam. Like the amount of collaboration necessary for people to barely pass. Like you said, you didn't do too well in the class. I don't know any music major that hasn't said about every single one of their classes. I know. Honestly. It's like, wild because they make you guys do the most. Yeah, I I wasn't even in the music school. I was just in theater school, which is like this weird conglomeration of it. But the music school people, they have to like, they have the juries and all this stuff. When I was in grad school, I had to learn how to play piano. And uh, we were we were like practicing the music school at Yale is like this ridiculous school. It's like where all these famous musicians came up through and you're like, I am practicing the same rooms on the same things that they are. And then like the people who would do the juries, I like, I had to play piano and my and my teacher was a grad student. They were like, oh my God, why do I have you? you uh, you're literally just starting from scratch. I was like, yeah, sorry. 
it's really bad. <laughs> it's really bad. And they were like, yeah, uh, so this is a song from a new world, but we're not, it's not called that because you're only playing a part of it. And there's this other thing. And then, so like, I could barely get through that because I wasn't, I didn't have time to practice as much as I wanted to. And my jury was with like one of these world renowned pianists. And like, I like suffered through this jury and the first question they asked, they're like, are you a music major? I was like, no. And they're like, okay, you did fine. You can go. I was like, thank God. Because <laughs> they, they were about to tear me a new one. They were about to like, send me, like cut me from the program. And they were like, you're, you're, go, just go. It was so bad. Oh. No. Yeah, I have very similar stories from a lot of friends. Because like I said, I was marching band world. So I did not do the music side. I did the dance side. Nice. Which I, but I watched all my friends do similar things. Like where I went to undergrad, um, they required everyone to take at least basic vocals. Nice. And those poor non-singers. Oh, yeah. Oh, God. They were, the teachers were like, get out. You're fine. Like, <laughs> you get a C. It's fine. Just, you tried. We saw your effort. Go. Wow. No, no critique because you don't want it anyway. <laughs> yeah my my wife was a music major for the first half of our college education and uh she had piano juries where the teacher would just plug in and listen to you on headphones and she was found that so nerve-wracking she also had to take german for singers italy for sing like italian for singers and french for singers it was like really really intense conservatory kind of stuff it was just like I, and she was like i can't handle this this isn't for me and moved to education instead because it's so so intense and there's so much knowledge you have to have no shout out to all the music degree holders and the music majors out there a thousand <laughs> a thousand percent because like you do the most always like, oh god it's you guys i say the dance department has it hard because they're always like practicing after because they have to wait till all the classes are over so they don't get to do dress rehearsals till 10 o'clock yeah for sure because the theater actually gets more space time in theater spaces so, like, shout out to all of you in <laughs> the fine and performing arts. Because the art school, too, you do a lot of, like, stuff as you're trying to, like, re-drywall and not huff the paint and all that. A thousand percent. Yeah. Um, suffer for art, but not in a glorified way. Yes. <laughs> um, so, people always talk about how competitive things are in front of the stage, like we were just saying. Um how competitive is it to work behind the scenes? Like kind of what you do. It's not that competitive. It's really on how you look at it. Right. I mean, cause at the end of the day, everyone's everyone who's working in the industry is technically your competitor, but really like, cause there's only so many theater jobs, at least for sound design. Right. Like there's only like, you know, there's only so many gigs and so many theater companies and there's even less theater companies as every year goes on. But at the end of the day, they're hiring me versus another sound designer from my perspective on that play. And it's not because I'm better than another person or I'm worse at this other thing, or it's because I, my perspective and dramaturgy and the way I base my craft is conductive to this production, as opposed to like, well, I think you just sound better than this other person. I think at a certain level, everyone's gonna sound good and what and what they're gonna what they need from you is the ideas you bring. And as long as you are a smart, artistic, and cognitive person, you're gonna you're gonna be able to like uh, sell yourself better and bring yourself to that to that kind of 
level. And at the end of the day, what I'm trying to say is that like we're not competitive because my perspective on my art is based on my lived experience and my training, whereas someone who has the same training as me is going to base on their lived experience. And it's just going to fit different and be better uh, for that production. So we're kind of competitive, but I'm never, I'm probably not up for the same jobs that anyone else is up for at the same time. You're not showgirling? No, no, <laughs> not at all. And the fact you get the reference. So many people don't get the reference anymore. Oh, yeah. Just push her down the stairs. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, so I'm going to hype Matt up everyone uh i'm gonna go off and list selected credits he's done for professional theaters around north america so thanks selling kabul from signature theater all of me baron barrington stage bruise and thorn pipeline theater company ricochet anthology the amoralists a patron of the arts cherry lane theater in a tilted place irt magnificent seven flint rep Hone and Lemon. Oh my god, did I typo? Is it Home and Lemon? Lemon? I don't know what you're referring to, so I think you must... Oh, Honey and Leon. Oh, yep, that. In New York City Children's Theater. Princess and the Pauper, a Bollywood tale. Imagination stage. Merrily we roll along for rail drama tea. Dramat. I think that was a typo on your resume, because I was oh, like, no. oh, drama tea. Um, oh no, it's dramat. It's the Yale dramat. So, oh, the Yale dramat... Is uh, the the um, the like a, a bunch of like extracurricular activities like the whiff and poofs are an extracurricular activity, and so the Yale Dramat is like the theater extracurricular activity, and it has its own endowment. They actually own the University Theater on campus at Yale, so like it, Yale's weird. It's like Hogwarts in a lot of ways. <sighs> uh, it's and like um, so the Yale Dramat is the like drama extracurricular activity, the drama club. A lot of famous people have come through the dramat and got their training at the dramat, even though it's just like this extracurricular kind of thing. Uh, so yeah. Cool. The dramat, everyone. And no, literally that is just like a super, like it's like a fourth of what your resume is because your resume is also like selected things, which means you've done more than that. And oh, yeah. the stuff that you've done that you either world premiered, got awards for, but like you've worked and yeah. So when people, cause I feel like some people question who they would bring on sometimes like, Oh, are they really as cool as you say? No, like Matt Otto here, like Google him. He's no, Googleable. <laughs> like I had to do sure my, you... I had oh. to do my CV recently and uh, it was over 200 shows. Wow. Look at you. That's amazing. And All of Me is is coming to New York uh, with the new group. They just announced it, I think, last week. Uh, so catch that show in March. It's going to be fantastic. Is it like Broadway in New York? Like what? Off-Broadway at Pershing Square as part of the Signature, signature Theater on uh, Street, um, just down past Playwrights Horizons. Uh, it's not produced by Sancher, but it's being performed at Sancher in the jewel box space. Cynthia uh, Nixon's in it, everyone. Oh, shit. Did we get Cynthia Nixon? Okay, great. Okay, so I'm reading um, Playbill.com. Cynthia Nixon, Laura Winter's All of Me, and Sabath's Theater Adaptation, a new group in 2023-2024 season. The productions will be presented off-Broadway at the Pershing, Signature Theater, or Pershing Square Signature Center. Yeah, this was published like six days ago. Yeah. 
I didn't know. I didn't know who we got casted yet. So that's fantastic. I'm very excited. Cynthia Nixon, Taylor Trench. I hope I'm saying that right. Sorry, everyone. Um, so that's a good question. So even though it's like a new cast and the production moves, is it still your sound design? Well, I haven't set a contract yet. So it's oh, supposed, okay. it should be. Um, it's, we, but like without a signed contract, it's not yet. So. Okay. Well, fingers crossed. Fingers crossed, everyone. And uh, by the time you're hearing this, in theory, you should have known. Either either way, it's going to be a great show, whether it's in my sound design or not. Laura Laura Winters is, is a fantastic playwright. Ashley Bookworm Rose is a fantastic director. It's going to be a great production. Mm-hmm. Oh, performances begin April twenty third, twenty twenty four, which is three months after this episode goes live. So, yeah. By then, by then, I'll have a sign contract. <laughs> <laughs> and you guys are hearing this in time to go see it. <laughs> yeah, Thank please God. buy tickets. It's going to be amazing. It's it's a very funny show. Uh, check out the synopsis on Playbill. It's 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 a comedy. It's very good, um, and it deserves as like all the all the awards. Oh my God! Forbes has an article out about it from four hours ago. Oh shit! Really? Yeah. I haven't looked this up. I just looked it up to make sure that I was reading everything correctly, but holy cow, look at you. Um, Hey, Um, and you did the sound design for the world premiere. Like I cannot remember everything off your resume right now. So you, yeah, what you did. So uh, Ashley Brooklyn Rowe and I have a really longstanding relationship, which is really great. And uh, she got this play when she had a residency at the drama league in New York uh, that we're just starting to do readings of it. And um, so she brought me on very early on because uh, the two main characters talk through text-to-speech uh, technology. And so she was like, I have a great play for you. I think you do really well with this. Brought me on. I'm very grateful for that. Um, and I started figuring out how to do the text-to-speech cues. And at first, I triggered all the all the lines. And then that day, Ashley was like, um, I want the actors to be able to perform the lines. Uh, can you make that happen? And I was like, I think so. And then I, on the tray ride home, I figured it out. I came in the next day. I was like, this is how we're doing it. And uh, I just got it in one and it worked out from there. And I, so we did from the drama league, we did a reading, uh, Barrington put on a, a, a virtual reading uh, two Januarys ago. I think it was last. Yeah. Not this past January, the January before. And then they did, and then they moved it to a production at the end of their season, last season. Um, it was the last play in their season, and that was the world premiere production of it. So we did a, a few readings, and then we did the world premiere at Barrington Stage. And it went really well. Uh, people awards. loved it. I did. I won a Best Sound Design. And um, one of the actresses in it won an award. Yeah, and funny enough, actually, in the article I was reading off from Playbill, uh all of me's off-Broadway run is at the end of the season as well. So, Yeah, they're finishing the new group's season. It's going to be great. Yeah, so consistency and, yeah, I don't know, just real working professional here, everyone. And, yeah, once you do stuff down by DC, let me know because, like, we could link up. We could meet. Yeah, I'd love that. Um, Yeah. Yeah. I, I didn't get to see Selling Kabul, but I literally was, like, around. I'm like, I should go see this. So it was really great seeing yourself. Yeah. I love signature. Um, 
it's a it's a great company. Uh, they're doing a lot of musicals, which is rare in DC, honestly. Um, Ethan Hurd is the associate artistic director, who is a classmate of mine at Yale, and then uh, Matthew is the artistic director, who has been there as the associate artistic director and then artistic director. Really knows the audience of Sancher, and and he knows like uh, how to build the dramaturgy of the, of the plays that they do. It's really great work, and the two of them are a great team. Um, and I love doing selling cobble and they know how to bring a good team together as well. They're, yeah. I, and they have like an ongoing, like recurring ensemble casts of people. So I'm like, Oh, if people are willing to come back, it must not be bad either behind the scenes, like you were saying. So I'm happy to hear that as well. Yeah. They do and, a great I'm excited to see where the rest of the company goes as they bring into their, they, they just started like the new team, I think a year ago. And I th- I'm really excited. It seems like they're on a really great, trajectory yeah um fun fact everyone uh matthew liked one of my tiktok comments the other day and i like was like e um <laughs> that's awesome so matt if you want to get either of them on the show let me let me know and help me out uh <laughs> sure because <laughs> i would love to have either of them of uh, course but yeah so final question along this topic is that for those interested in this kind of work how does one come about these jobs? Because like, I don't see them posted anywhere. Do you have like an agent for this sort of stuff? Like, let's talk about the process of how these opportunities just like come into your existence or anyone's really. Cause it's like, how do you even hear about this stuff? We totally. don't hear about this a lot. Yeah. Um, I do have an agent, but they don't get you work. They deal with your contracts and stuff like that. Because like, I don't want to talk, I don't want to talk money with people. I don't want to talk like, what are my requirements and all that? I'd rather my agent just do that and I get to talk about the art with the people. Because like all the theaters have like a business side that they talk about like hiring and the contracts. So I'd rather just let business people handle business and I get to talk about art. Um, for me, getting the jobs, it's like a lot about who you know, um, who you've come up with, right? So like when I was in DC, um, a lot of my friends, like I, like, we're in the scene. And so I moved down there outside of the scene. Um, and I didn't know where to start. And I just started gigging. And like, what would happen is I would, I would design at smaller theaters and assist at bigger ones. And they would, they would see me as a person who was just around doing the work. And then they would see me doing good work as this. And they would decide like, oh, well, we don't want to bring in a New York designer for this show. So we'll bring in someone local. And then I meet other assistants. And when they grow, I grow. And we all just kind of build each other up. Uh, and then when I moved, when I went to grad school, I moved to New York. It's all about who you know, because New York's so big and yet so small. Um, so it's like, what are you working on? Oh, I'm working on this. Do they need a sound designer? And uh, I got a lot of gr- uh, gigs at the Barrow Group because one of the set designers recommended me for the gig and I was available. And they're, they're like, they recommended like three people and I was the one who was around. And uh, they like my work. So I got to, like, it's all about who you know. Maybe it's your set designer. As long as you're a cool, chill person, you're probably going to get more work. And, like, you know, uh, how I got Sun Cobble was um, the director was someone who went to Yale School of Drama, but after me. But I went, uh, but uh, they had a sound designer who dropped out and um, they sent around requests to all the agencies. And my agent, like, passed this on, not to me, but like in general. And uh, her knew like knew they were looking for a sound designer. He sent it out to all the sound designers he knows. And they interviewed a bunch of people and uh, it can, they connected with me. 
And so I got it that way. And it's just like, because I went to grad school with uh, Ethan and because um, Yale has this thing where it's like, you uh, sometimes we call it the Yale school of trauma. Cause like, I know what you had to go through to suffer through it. Yeah. And I know like, so everyone knows they suffered for it. And like, if you got through it and you're still working and you're still doing it, then you're probably pretty good. So that like badge of honor to you, which really helps. And like, that's like at, at SUNY Purchase, it's the same kind of thing, right? It doesn't have to be Yale. It's like a SUNY Purchase, you know, you did, you know, you did this good work together. And so you can hire these other people uh, with you. And like, you know, that the work is going to be good in quality. I'm so happy I was muted for that because <laughs> you saw me when you said the Yale School of Trauma, like I almost woke up people laughing <laughs> because I feel like that's all grad school. Yeah, grad school. Yeah, you said earlier that like we suffered for our education and we truly suffered for our education. It's it's brutal. It was like classes nine to two, production from two to 11. And then we had a lot of homework and that was homework until you had to go back to class. And it was yeah. just like, it was like tons of homework. Yeah. And my grad school, it wasn't necessarily the edu the education part. It was like my cohort that I was like dying over. But I've talked about in other shows. Everyone go listen. But yeah, no. Grad school. I encourage everyone to pursue higher education if you could figure out a way to do it. But also, no, it's easier, but also life draining compared to undergrad. Life training. Yeah. Yeah. It's brutal. It's a lot. So happy I only did it in two years. <laughs> mine, I, was, mine was three. See, because they were trying to, like, you could extend it and get this extra stuff. I was like, no, 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 I'm out. <laughs> yeah, it's so funny. The only, the school at Yale, the same school that had our, our schedule, because, like, we would, like, you know, most, most schools, it's like, oh, Thanksgiving week, you get all of the week off. And we only got Thursday and Friday off. And the only other school that was like that was the medical school. And like, so it was just us in the medical school left on campus a lot of time because we all had the same hours and the same kind of like having to fucking do the work. Sorry, I don't know if you're allowed to curse on this podcast. Oh, yes, you are. Okay, great. I <laughs> already dropped the S-bomb like multiple times. You said fuck a couple times too. So don't Oh, worry. did I? Okay. Yep. Sorry. No, it's cool. Like I said, cursing's allowed. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I know that's what I do too. I like to giggle. Um, so yeah, thank you for sharing about just like it's the who you know. Um, I get that. That's how I got a lot of my marching band stuff. Nice. I, I just showed up because let me tell you, people think there's no money in performing arts. That it also includes in public education performing arts. So oh, truly. I just showed up. I was like, no, I love doing this. I could fix your kids. I could teach them a couple things. I'll just keep coming because I'm close by and free. And that's how I've grown into the guard empire that I in my head have. That's awesome. Yeah, that's the whole, it's like, not only who you know, but like showing up and doing the work, right? Like, is, and being consistent. Like, and it's nice. one thing to, yeah, nice. Yes, you have to be nice. That's, that's actually like most of the time, because no one will rehire you if you're an asshole. Yes. <laughs> and I try to explain that to so many people. Like, oh, yeah. Just be nice. It doesn't matter how good you are. <laughs> yeah. Up. It, like, there's really not a meritocracy, because like, at a certain level, you're all quite good. And so what you're battling out with is all the other aspects of your work. And especially in my stuff, I'm like, guys, it's not a big talent pool. Most people <laughs> stop after high school. Like if we're still interested after high school, we're pretty good. Just be nice. 
there's a huge learning curve because again, there's no higher education for our stuff, like on the flag side. So I'm like, Oh, totally. Just be nice. <laughs> yeah. I stopped marching band after high school. Oh, what'd you do? I was a trumpeter and then marching baritone. I don't know why everyone that I end up friends with is trumpet. So this should not surprise me. That's fine. Um, but yeah. Awesome. Any shout outs from like your band life that come to mind? Uh, I know, like, I, I would love, if uh, Mr. Tominia is listening, uh, reach out to me, because I wonder what you're up to, because I haven't seen you in 20 years. That'd be really great. Um, yeah, shout out, reach out. Uh, at the end of the episode, we're going to go over how people can get in touch with you. Awesome. Uh, what were the shows you did, like, marching themes? Oh, I don't remember. That was a long time ago. That was 20 years ago. Um, oh, we did a Blues Brothers. We had um, one of this amazing... When I was in marching band, we had an amazing trumpeter, Nick Marchione, who now is like a professional trumpeter. Um, and Bloods, uh, he plays with Blood, Sweat, and Tears and a whole bunch of people. Um, and so it would be a lot of stuff where it would be based around him. He couldn't march very well, and he like freely admitted to that. But what he could do is that he would just walk down the field, put, put his legs on either side, and just play the most amazing trumpet solo you've ever fucking heard in your life, just consistently. And so we would win all these awards because he was just a fucking virtuoso uh, and a goddamn genius. Um, and like programs based around trumpet solos that didn't feel like it was too much at the time no um that's what we got to do like we're an inclusive environment in like public education and it's like if you want to come we'll figure out a way to make it work highlight the talents and hide anything we can yeah and i i was a terrible marcher up until my last two years and i couldn't i couldn't do any of those solos so they kept me around which was nice it's okay you were consistent and you showed up <laughs> that's true like we said it's a consistent theme people show up show up so you also have a couple interests that involve the idea of government involvement so let's chat about those sure um you're super passionate about government funding for the arts which yes pretty obvious but talk about that well like the NEA doesn't exist in this country anymore. It was this like thing that like was founded in the sixties or seventies. I forget the exact history. And it was just completely gutted uh, in the eighties um, by uh, the conservative party because they didn't want to fund like art and changing people's minds and conveying these ideas. So there's theaters all over the country that were founded based on this funding. And now it doesn't exist. We're based on the Ford foundation. And there's a lot of like philanthropy that theater relies on that uh, is drying up because the philanthropists who care about theater are getting old and dying, to be honest. And like, we're going to lose a major cultural institution in our country without government funding for the arts. It's very, it's ultimately frustrating because like, you know, for foundation, like, what are we, like, what are we fighting for when we're, when we don't fight for the culture? And like, we can say the culture is Netflix. We can say it's Hollywood and all that, but like, and it is, but that's, that's like the commercialization of the art form that is theater, I think in a lot of ways. And like the art form that is film, but like we, we're going to lose it if we don't have that kind of funding. 
And along those lines, too, I think the pandemic really helped people highlight the importance of, like, the commercialization side. But with all the strikes going on now, people, like, we're hitting a point where we're not going to get anything new other than reality TV for a while, which, as a reality TV junkie, I'm, like, kind of thrilled about in a way. But also, like, you know, I want people to have, like, you know, their union stuff met, like, go Fran. But um, live theater is still going strong, people. Like, it's about to be our only form of, like... Not fresh creative new takes for a while at this rate yeah and that's an important point is like there's so much difference between the haves and the haves nots in those unions that like that's what they're fighting for is to like be able to make it a can lead to a middle class lifestyle and if you hit it you hit it that's great you know you if you can get to the upper levels of that industry or any industry great but like Right now, like a Googler start, like a, a Googler who starts is making one hundred fifty thousand dollars, whereas like actors are making thirty. And I guess you can say like that coder puts more value into touches more lives than an art person, but I don't think that's true, and I think that's impossible to measure. And I I think we should be able, like as the richest country in the world that we like to think of ourselves, there may not be true. Um, we should be able to fund arts and be a middle-class lifestyle for artists. Like we shouldn't have to die destitute or be like the most popular person or have rich people give us money because they want a tax break. Like there should just be a robust culture as part of our economy, culture sector as part of our economy. Period. (laughs) You said it way better than I can. So period there done. Um, another thing that you want is government control of adoptees. So in which way do you want them to control us? (laughs) Just kidding people. But you know, what does that mean? That phrase? Um, Because that's what you I saw this on the questionnaire. I, oh, I might've mistyped it. I was wondering what that was, where you got that (laughs) phrasing. Um, it's, it, and I guess it's, it's goes back to the, like the, the birth certificate control and the fact that like, there's, we have to fight for this, that we have to fight. There's so much where the government's just like, Oh, you can't, you can't see your original birth certificates. That would betray the privacy of the birth mother. And it's like, sure, sure, but there should be a balance, right? There should be like this, like my entire life is dictated based on a contract entirely about me that I had no say in because it was created before I was born, but it, it runs my life. It, it, like it informs who I am. It, it, it provides me trauma that I've had to process. It's provide like I've it's put me in a place full of strangers that I had to find my way into, and it's uh and I cannot find my history. And I believe that knowing your parents is a fundamental human right. And the fact that prevents that from happening because the government is full of people who like either use adoption to get rid of something shameful. Or use it for the things that it's not it's not intended for. It's like to protect themselves as so like they always say it's about the 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 but what's best for the baby. But all the laws say like as soon as we're not babies anymore, as soon as we want to know and like have rights that uh the kept have, to use a that term again, uh we don't we don't have, we don't have any control over that. So I want to abolish those rules like you know maryland has this great rule for anyone after 2000 which has only been like just now are those 
in the last five years are those adoptee those adoptees are able to get their records so they don't even know like they passed this law in 1998 but like those adoptees couldn't start looking until now and that's a 20 year old law and like we don't know what the repercussions are going to be like that but i'm pretty sure it's going to lead to a lot of awkward questions for the bio parents but it's going to lead to a lot better healing for the adoptees yep um kind of similar to like when i was in 1997 they made the citizenship law god i forgot what it's called basically if you're adopted by citizens you are considered a citizen at birth um that caused a lot of things uh so much so that they had to update it in 2001 because it was already causing things and yeah it's still a thing now like parents had to get citizenship for international adoptees from my understanding of it and i I think there's some who are getting deported Uh, it's more of like the law itself because that's a different thing actually what you're talking about but it's along the same lines and a lot of people are mixing it up the thing i I appreciate the clarification oh no problem uh like because that's the thing i know nothing about that side because it sounds similar but the side i know is uh the fact that i'm considered born here and i could technically run for president now even though i totally wasn't so that's a fun campaign um one day if i ever decided i don't want to (laughs) Well, but, good. Yeah. I, I appreciate you clarifying because I shouldn't speak on international adoption stuff. I only know what I read from other international adoptees. But if we don't talk speak about on it, like... Yeah, but I should just let them speak learn. on it. People are talking about it. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Don't doubt the power of your voice, too. You're a very good speaker, so... I appreciate that. Thank you. Yeah. No. If it's in the pop culture topics, everyone should be allowed to say it is how I feel. But... All right, there ended the main question portion. So it's commercial time, people. Then we get into our misnamed rapid fire questions. All right, so because Matt and I met through our other show affiliates, we're going to talk about ABC adoptees born in China because that's the new name for it. It was still ABC, but slightly different phrasing. Okay, so same China, different stories. Uh, We are the ones who found our way in a new life adoptees born in china chinese adoptee stories and the stories of those lives they have become a part of this podcast acts as a personal journal archive and resource for adoptees and others if you want to share your story send an email to adoptedbabiesfromchina at gmail.com um there's an instagram at adoptees born in china podcast on instagram facebook rate and review them there's i think they use ben sound look i'm just reading the description people just like look it up it's an orange symbol with like four stars to represent China-ish. Look, just go with it. Um, Tara runs it. I'll it'll be linked in our description. It's a fun show. Go listen to my three episodes because I just keep going back because Tara and I like to talk. <laughs> and you get to hear stories about me and lots of other cool people that wander around international adoptee world, like Matt was saying. Awesome. Yeah, I've listened to that podcast. It's fantastic. Oh, I will share that. Have you ever told Tara? No. Oh my god. Yeah. I'm gonna tell Tara. <laughs> oh, good. Please. I'm gonna tell Maria about her grandpa's hand you saw. I'm gonna tell Tara <laughs> oh about the podcast. Like, <laughs> people are gonna love your episode. Oh, thanks. <laughs> guests. All right, but are you ready for the wrongly named rapid fire questions? I am. Okay, so question number one. What are your chosen coping skills? Oh, that's a tough question. What is which? Uh, um, Editing photos. 
that like I can zen out in that and that helps. Also, uh, talking through problems. It's very annoying to my partners and my coworkers because I, I it really helps me to talk through like issues we're dealing with. Um, but, um, and they're usually like, I don't know, just do it. And I'm like, I'm sorry. <laughs> it really helps me think through what thing. Um, I'm the exact same way. I need to talk. I'm a verbal processor. If I'm not talking about it, I don't get it. So same exact way with you there. And people don't respect our needs sometimes about it. So <laughs> I'll say it. Question number two, what show would you bring back? Oh, um, oh, I'll probably say Futurama, but it just came back. <laughs> For the thousandth time. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Um, I don't know. Uh, I would also say Aqua Teen Hunger Force, but that just came back too. Everything's old is new again. It's really, it's like, who knows? It's like, I could, I, I think that's that's it. And the Simpsons are still on. They've been on for almost as long as I've been alive. So I don't know. <laughs> I wish I had a better answer for you. I'm glad you're living a good TV life, though. <laughs> well, I don't know about good, but I'm living that life. I mean, they're coming back, so... That's true. Your TV dreams are coming true. Oh, wait, I got one. It's the elect- It's the uh, electric company. Back in the day, uh, that's this is a real children of the 80s kind of thing. The, look up the electric company. It was, I think it was by Children's Television Workshop, but uh, it was, like, really cool 1980s kind of thing. I'd love to see, like, a new modern take on the... Uh, on that. Yeah, no, I'm looking. Oh, wait, am I muted? No, I'm not muted. Okay. Now I'm looking it up right now. Uh, yeah. Oh, Morgan Freeman, Rita Moreno, Bill Cosby. Oh, there's a lot of famous people in this. It's, yeah, it was a classic. Wow. Okay. Question number three Which fictional character would you want to end up with? Open ended, so you could define oh. what that means. Oh, I don't know. Oh my gosh. Um, I have no idea. I'm um, Miranda from the Tempest. I don't know. I, I don't even think Miranda's a character in the Tempest. <laughs> one of the people, one of the uh, uh, princesses in the Tempest. I think it would be my choice. No, Miranda is one of the principal characters in the Tempest. She's the only female character to appear on stage. There you go. I get confused on the shape. All the Shakespeare's kind of meld together sometimes. Because there are always princesses. We always go to the woods. It's always a thing. Into the Woods is my favorite show, along with Be More Chill. So I'm oh, you like Be Oh, yeah. Ryan Rumery, who I mentioned earlier, designed Be More Chill. <gasps> oh, my God. If you want to get him on the show, let me know. Uh <laughs> he, he, now, he now works for This American Life. Uh, so, yeah. He might come on, for sure. Oh my god, yeah. Send anyone and everyone. I'll talk to anyone. <laughs> awesome. Anyone that's not trying to actively kill me is my standard. <laughs> <laughs> like, is welcome on the show. Uh, yeah. Actually, this one of the stage manager. Okay, he was the stage door manager, which is like a Be More Chill, like, exclusive job. Came on the show. Oh, cool. That's awesome. Yeah. Um, I actually saw the show twice in New York, and I just befriended people. I make friends everywhere. That's how the show happened. Go ahead. Leave it. People. Oh, question number four. What would your signature candle scent be? Oh. Um, 
fall leaves like when it's you know the crisp air of fall that's what it is the crisp air of fall i love not pumpkin spice but just like when you know fall is coming it's the end of the summer and it's that first crisp cool night whatever smell that is that would be my candle scent what would you put in a time capsule um oh i don't know probably like Uh, some kind of sound hardware, like an MPC, like an old, uh, or an A, put that in a time capsule, a drum machine, a classic drum machine. Cause like everything in audio is like a, a metaphor for what came before it. So like the drum machine is based on drums and like, what, what does that mean to make it smaller and more compact and easy and like more democratized? And then now we have software that does it and like an iPad can do it and all that. I like I like the history of trying to figure out how to play a piece of music for the digital age. Nice. If you ran away with the circus, what would your act be? Um I would be Oh, I don't know. Uh I would like to be like the lion tamer, but it's like chill hanging out with lion's time, not like whipping them or bending them off with a chair. <laughs> no, um, that's a good clarifier, but yeah, that's awesome. No one said that one yet, so good job. Oh, oh man. What did other people say? Uh, strong man was a popular oh, that's a good one. one. That's a good yeah. one. Uh, I should have chosen that one. One, someone said a cannon, like you know, the people that shoot out of the cannon. Oh, that's way better. Yeah, no, that's that's my answer. Let's just go back to that. Yeah, that's, no, go feed that's the lions. <laughs> that's cool too. I like the man getting shot out of a cannon, person getting shot out of a cannon. That's good. Um, what would be your forty-five minute apology video be about? Uh, probably said something stupid. Put my foot in my mouth. Uh. If you knew me from Facebook back in the day, I probably had to do a few apologies about something because I believe very passionately. This is a thing that I realized came from my bio family is a very self-righteousness and whether I believe is right is right. And um, I don't have a lot of patience for nuance, or at least when I was younger, I didn't. And uh, now I have a lot more patience for nuance and a lot more room and empathy for other people's uh, viewpoints, except for, you know, it's very like bigotry and hatred and all that there's no room for that ever uh and racism if you're trying to kill me that's the line <laughs> <laughs> um oh what is your best impression oh i don't have one. Oh, no one said it was good i said just what is i didn't even ask can you i just said what fair i think it'd be christopher walken i don't know that's a really easy one though so that's fine is it easy i don't know uh, how sad is it that my best memory of Christopher Walken's work is Hairspray? Oh, that's great. I love that. That's really good. I, you know, he's like, there's the classic Simpsons where it's not even Christopher Walken. It's Jay Moore doing Christopher Walken where he reads Goodnight Moon. He's like, Goodnight Moon, the cat and the fiddle. And I can't even do it. It's terrible. <laughs> I just said, Go look it up. Look it up on YouTube. It's way better than whatever I just did. Okay. Oh, this will be fun for you. Oh, I'm going to slink out of the frame. Embarrassment on how bad that was. 
No, no, no. Well, I mean, but then this question would work because then we know who would replace you because the next one is, who would play you in a documentary or movie about your life? Um, do you know who Yahoo Sirius is? No. <laughs> he did this. He was a comedian from Australia in the 80s. And he did this like Einstein movie. And uh, when I was younger, I had this really wild flop of hair. That's like him from the movie. So yeah. Be... I Googled it. I see it. Young <laughs> Einstein. Yes. Was it also red? No, it wasn't red. But you know. But yeah, Yahoo's serious. That's, that's who I'd choose. You had that fast. I'm proud. Back in the day on Facebook, they were like, post someone who looks like you. And so I posted Yahoo serious. Um, what genre would that documentary or movie be? Uh, a docu-comedy, like The Office or something like that. All right. And final question is, if your life was a jukebox musical, what would be the opening song? Oh, shit. This is a good question. Because I have a lot of friends who want to write jukebox musicals, and myself included. Um, Same. And so I, th <laughs> I think it would be uh, either something for the Get Up Kids, like Four Minute Mile, or uh, Less Than Jake, Magnetic North. That's what it would be. So everyone, the story of Matt Otto is Yahoo Serious in the docu-comedy series doing Four Minute Mile or the other song. To open it magnetic north yep <laughs> let that sink in your head that's your life that, that'd be a weird combination i would like to see it though that'd be funny it's okay you could design it for the sound wise to make it actually sound good <laughs> it would sound good it, it's it's i think very fitting because i don't take a lot of things very seriously except for my art and my family even my art is like mostly fun because if we're not having fun why are we doing it true all right, so that was the final part of the rapid-fire question portion, so awesome. Uh, where can people find you, Matt? Um, you can find me on most socials as a great sound, uh, no spaces, um, or uh, mattauto.photos if you want to see my photography. My sound stuff, my theater stuff is a great sound, and my photos are mattauto.photos. On Instagram? Yeah, on Instagram. Yep, yeah, I have two Instagram accounts. Oh my god, I don't even follow your other Instagram. Hold up. That's okay. I, I um yeah, and if you if you want if you want my opinions on adoption, you'll follow a great sound. Oh no, I'm doing that now. Uh <laughs> but not on I don't do that on Instagram, but like on threads or uh blue sky or or the other alternatives to Twitter. Oh, look at that. Ethan J. Hurd follows you. He does, it's true. Oh. Yeah. Wow. Wow, you have great photos. Where's this, oh, like, thanks. mountain? Oh, oh that was the Grand, Grand Tetons, yeah. yeah. Wow. I, I like, oh, when I was growing up, we visited a lot of national parks, and what we didn't visit was, like, the three major ones, Yosemite, Yellowstone, and the Grand Tetons. And so that's, like, I did a road trip with my wife, and we hit all those. Wow, I'm also looking at one that you did of a 2006 cross-country road trip in California during the wildfires. Yeah, there were some wildfires, and we were like driving through California, and like they would, we stopped at a rest stop, and they were like, uh, "Which way are you going?" We're like, "We're going north." I'm like, good, because it's closed. I was like, "Whoa!" 
And like when we were driving, there was like fireballs shooting over the 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 lane. It was wild. It looked like we were in a, like a Mario level. Wow, which is funny because yeah. you're wearing Mario. Um, I am. I'm a nerd at the end of the day. Wait, okay, we could talk about that too. What kind of nerd are you? <laughs> I'm a I'm a theater nerd and a video game nerd. What games do you play? Um, Destiny mostly. Oh, okay. Um... And and all the Nintendo stuff. Like, uh, I just I the first Pokemon game was Scarlet and Violet because I got the double for my son. My son and I play together. Uh, that's I've been really enjoying that. And um, oh my gosh, what are the three starters again? Remind me. The cat, the duck, the crocodile. Oh yeah, I wanted it to be the the cat, but my son was going to choose the cat, such so as the crocodile. Oh my god, I'm the duck. That's awesome. <laughs> um, yeah. Sorry, you were going on about other games too. No, no, no. that's uh, I've been in one, and then also you know, Tears of the Kingdom is amazing. It's like truly amazing. Zelda has been one of my favorite uh, franchises for all time. I've been playing video games since nineteen since the Nintendo came out. Have you played Fire Emblem? Uh, no, not as much. No, uh, but uh, I do enjoy Shining Force. That's look that up. <laughs> it's old school. If you saying, have, yeah, I've heard of Shining Force. Yeah, if you have the Nintendo like Sega Genesis thing on their Switch. That's on there. And it's very similar to Fire Emblem, but not as anime. No, Shining Force 2 is considered one of like, the great like RPGs of the past. Yeah, I love Shining Force 2. I mean, they're great. They're great games. Yeah, actually, that's how I heard of it, because there was a meme earlier today. What was the best game? Legends of Dragoon or Shining Force? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, Legend of Dragoon. Um, <laughs> that, that's my opinion. But yeah, I, no. I've never played it. But yeah, uh, I should pick up Fire Emblem. I've been meaning to get the the newest one, the Three Houses. That's not even the newest one anymore, but I recommend. Oh, really? Three I've heard it's amazing. It was, is. I'm gonna pick it up for my son when he's older. Yeah, wait till he's older. Yeah. Like, yeah, older, older. But <laughs> you can play it now. <laughs> I definitely have to check it out. Yeah. Um. God, where were we? Oh, while you have the platform of here, is there anything you want to say to the world? No, I think I covered it, honestly. Uh, just, you know what you should do is contact your uh, representative and tell them that they should fund the arts. And that, uh, like, local theater, like, and go to your local theater. Find whatever whatever the local theater is, go to it, support it. It needs your support now more than ever. Yes, and you will hear that same speech at the end of it as well. <laughs> I also say the same thing about your local school's theater. Yes, like, um, I love going to high school theaters, not necessarily because, you know, they are growing young people, but what's amazing about it is watching the directional choices based off a of budget. Oh my God. So fun. It's very fun. And if you ever have a little shop of horrors happening, you never know which ending you're going to get. So go see it. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. We did a, in high school, we did a course. And like we had to, edit, like we were just like ripping pages out. There was just like we could do half of the show, it's like a two and a half hour show. We got it down to an hour. It was amazing. Wow! <laughs> and it made a coherent sense. I mean, it's chorus line. You know, they're actors. They're struggling. We get it. 
Um, oh wait, you would be someone I could maybe ask about this. When people do a chorus line, do they have to pay extra money to do the like specific dance or you can't choreography? That's what I was trying to figure out, but everyone knows that dance. So I'm like, okay, well, someone has to be doing it somewhere. Yeah, but you like you can just do it. You can just copy it. Yeah. No, you have can't you can't copyright choreography or blocking. So you can just rip it off. People will say, like, well, that was, you know, obviously it's just from that. Like, everyone knows it, so you're just going to know it. But you're perfectly within your right to just rip it off. Great artist steal, right? Yeah. And the Dancers Guild has actually, like, been working a lot about that now that it's formed. That's true. That's true. And also, like, with Fortnite, right, all those dances, they like, they just stole all those dances. And Fortnite makes a shit ton of money. And, like, they're not paying in the creators, but now they just kind of did. Because uh, it's the right thing to do. Yeah, it is. Um, and there's enough talented young people online. You can just find one of them to make something up for you if you need to. For serious, that's what they should have done anyway. Yeah. But Matt, thank you so much for coming on today. Thank you for having me. I don't. Yeah, you and I were able to keep up about like a billion different topics, and I don't find that a lot. So. Usually, like, we focus in on, like, one topic, but we were able to hop between, like, you know, nerdum, theater, adoptees. Like, it's been a blast. Loved having Thank you. Thank I've, you. I've had a blast being here. It's been awesome. You're a great host. Oh, thank you. <laughs> toot toot. Okay. But, um, <laughs> yeah, you'll get to hear the full jingle now. Perfect. Everyone out there, feel free to reach out at the Shape of a Star podcast. We're on website.com we're on instagram uh don't check the twitter because i haven't updated it ever um and we have a gmail so it's just at the shape of a star no the shape of a star podcast at gmail.com hunt me down check out matt's work it's amazing and yeah bye everyone bye